Hey y'all, welcome back to A Natural State of Murder. I am your host, Jess, and as always, I am very excited to be here with you today. If you are on Facebook, go and like our page, Natural State of Murder, and while you are there, you can also join the private group for discussion on this case and all of our other cases, and if you are on Instagram, go and follow at Natural State of Murder. Today, we are in Connecticut, and we are going to be discussing the case of Anna Marie Lee. 24-year-old Anna Marie Lee was born on July 3, 1985 in San Jose, California. She went by Annie, and Annie and her brother were raised by an aunt and uncle in Placerville, California. She came from a very large, tight-knit Vietnamese-American family, and they were all very, very close. Annie was smart, and she always excelled in school. She attended high school at Union Mine High, and during her senior year, she was not only voted most likely to be the next Einstein, but she was also the valedictorian of her class. Annie applied for as many scholarships as she could for college, and she was awarded over $160,000 in scholarships. She attended college for her undergraduate degree at the University of Rochester in upstate New York. She majored in cell development biology, and she also had a minor in medical anthropology. While going to school at Rochester, Annie met Jonathan Wadowski. Annie fell in love with Jonathan. His sister would later say they were more than soulmates. They were absolute best friends. After undergrad, Annie went to graduate school at Yale in New Haven, Connecticut. Annie and Jonathan were engaged and were set to be married on September 13, 2009. Annie was studying pharmacology at Yale, and she was studying the effects of drugs in mice for diabetes and certain cancers. Annie excelled in her academics, and everyone who knew her described her kind heart and how she wanted to help cancer patients and be a piece of that puzzle to help find the cure for cancer. She had big goals and ambitions in life. She was getting married, she wanted to be a healer, and Annie wanted to be a world changer. On September 8, 2009, Annie left her apartment and went to Sterling Hall of Medicine that was located on the Yale campus. Around 10 a.m. that morning, she made the three-block walk to her research lab at 10 Amistad Street, also on the Yale campus. At 9 p.m. that evening, Annie had not returned home for the day. Her roommates, friends, family, and even Jonathan had not heard from her all day, which they all said it was very odd for Annie not to be in contact with anyone. It was odd that she was not home yet, and it was even more concerning that she was not answering any phone calls or any text messages. They were all quickly very, very concerned, and one of Annie's roommates reported her missing to the police. Police initially thought that Annie had gotten cold feet or maybe had, you know, last-minute nerves about getting married. 
She went missing on the 8th, and she was supposed to be married on the 13th in Jonathan's hometown of Long Island, New York. Jonathan was attending grad school at Columbia University in New York. He came to New Haven when Annie was reported missing, along with her family from California. On the 8th, Annie was seen in security footage going into the building that held her research lab around 10.30 a.m. The area, including a garage, it was covered by over 70 security cameras, and none of those cameras caught Annie leaving the building, the area, or the campus on that day or the next day. Where in the yell hell was Annie Lee? While at first, police did not think that they had a crime, and they certainly did not feel like they had something more serious like a homicide, but that quickly changed. Annie's purse was found at Sterling Hall, which was the first building that she had gone to that morning, and that building was located three blocks away from her lab. Her purse contained her cell phone, credit cards, debit card, and ID. Annie had not run away, and she had not left just because she had cold feet or had second thoughts about getting married. The fire alarm had gone off the day of the 8th in her building. Everyone was evacuated. There was thought maybe Annie had left the building at this time. She was 4'11", she weighed 90 pounds, she was very tiny, and it would have been very easy for her to have been hidden in this large group of people if that is actually when she left. But it does not make sense. Her purse and all means of her accessing money was left behind. Four days after she went missing, police found bloody clothing in the ceiling just outside of her lab. At this point, the building was finally considered a crime scene and it was taped off. Months before she disappeared, Annie had written an article about crime on campus and staying safe. New Haven, it has a it has a really high crime rate in particular, a high murder rate for a city of its size. And of those murders, they have a rate of less than 30% solving these murders. And Yale was right in the hot spot for that crime. Granted, most of that crime was drug-related. On September 13th, police noted a smell that smelled like decomposition. They brought in cadaver dogs to search the building. On that same day, the 13th, police found the body of Anna Marie Lee stuffed upside down inside of a wall. She was found around 5 p.m. that day. This was at the same time that Annie should have been walking down the aisle to the love of her life. That day was supposed to be the happiest day of her life, and Annie was found dead in what was very apparently a homicide, and her life had been completely ripped away from her by an absolute monster. Annie's body was found in the wall of a utility space in a bathroom located right next to her basement lab where she had been working in that day that she went missing. 
The hole in the wall was eight inches deep, and it was covered by a metal piece that was the size of a computer screen. There were also two water pipes that ran vertically and horizontally through that same space. Annie's body was mangled and bent, and her bones were broken to stuff her into the opening that was literally the size of a computer screen. As reported in an article in the New York Post, a source said he just crushed her in there. She was like mush. She was so smashed up, you could not recognize her. Annie's autopsy showed that her cause of death was to be traumatic asphyxiation by neck compression. She had been strangled. She also had a broken jaw and collarbone, and that had been done prior to her death. Her bra was pushed up, and her panties were pulled down to her ankles. A semen was found on her panty liner and also on other areas of her body. Security was supposedly very tight on campus because of the high crime rate in the area. This building, though, was supposed to have an even higher security level, including cameras, because of protest by animal rights activists on the regular. Part of the security in place were key cards that were required to gain entry to the building, and the security levels were different for each room and lab in the building. For example, security was higher in Annie's lab because of the animals that were kept in the lab. I would assume this is because they did not want them taken or harmed in any way, and also these mice were being used to study, you know, for possible drugs to be used in humans, and of course, I, they wouldn't have wanted them tampered with in any way. Yale Police, New Haven Police, Connecticut State Police, and the FBI, they were all working together in investigating the murder of Annie Lee. New Haven made an announcement that Annie's killing was not random, but they would not publicly say why at the time. Friends, family, and students, they all gathered in front of the fence that surrounded the building where Annie's body was found. They placed flowers and candles and other mementos in memory of Annie, but they were also praying for justice. Even before Annie's body was found, police had zeroed in on Raymond Clark III. Ray was not a student at Yale. He was an animal lab tech in the same lab that Annie worked in, and he was essentially a custodian. The day Annie went missing, before anyone actually knew that she was missing, like I said earlier, the fire alarm in the building had gone off. As everyone was evacuating, a police officer made contact with Ray Clark. The officer said that he was suspicious of Ray because of his behavior. He said Ray seemed very nervous about something. He tried to keep his arms folded in front of him, and he also attempted to keep his body hidden. He stated that Ray actually acted like he was guilty of something. Annie and Ray both had key cards required to enter the building, the lab, other rooms, and perform other functions in the building. Ray's keycard history showed that he was in the room when the fire alarm went off that day of the 8th, and police believe that that might have actually been accidental. 
The fire alarm was set off from hot steam in the lab that was typically used to clean and disinfect tools and equipment that were there in the lab. Records also showed that Annie used her card to go into the lab and then Ray used his card to go in right behind her less than 30 minutes later. Co-workers also reported that Ray was a control freak and he would just lose his shit over the cleanliness of the lab. He had recently sent Annie an email berating her about the condition that she had left some of her mice cages in. Co-workers also said that Ray would constantly bitch at Annie and others about how he wanted them to keep their station cleaned. I guess his thought process is if they didn't clean up properly or how he thought that they should do it, that just created more work for him. On the day Annie went missing, Ray's card was used to go from the room that they were located in, G13, to another room, G22, 55 times. Before Annie was found, a co-worker named Rachel Wood reported to police that she had found a box of wipes on a cart that were located in the lab, and the box appeared to have blood splatter on it on one side. Rachel said Ray turned that box around so that the blood wasn't openly facing where everyone could just see it. Because, you know, that's how you hide a crime scene, Ray. Ray was seen scrubbing a drain in the floor several times for absolutely no apparent reason. And he was also seen doing the same to just one area of the floor that was located under a sink in the lab. On September 10th, police found an extra lab coat in a recycling box that had red stains on it. Video provided showed Ray wearing a similar coat on September the 8th, which, you know, was the same day that Annie went missing. All evidence, including the box and the coat, was sent off to check for DNA, and then police also went to Annie's apartment to get items like her toothbrush to use to get her DNA to compare it to. It was Annie's blood on the box, and her DNA was also found on that lab coat. Also on that lab coat was unknown male DNA, and that was found on the collar and the cuffs of the coat. Ray was interviewed. He said he saw Annie come in about 10.30 a.m. that morning wearing a brown skirt and a yellow lab coat. He said he saw her leaving about 15 minutes later with a notebook and two bags of mouse food. Ray also had scratches on his face and his left bicep. When asked about those injuries, Ray said he got the injuries from his cat. I mean, how convenient, Ray. You know, when someone has defensive wounds from a struggle after they've killed someone, it's always the cat. They always have a cat, and the cat is always the one that scratched them up. After his interviews, police got search and seizure warrants, and they got mouth swabs, you know, for our BFF, DNA, body hair, fingerprints, and fingernail clippings from Ray to compare to other DNA that was found on the scene. On September 12th, the bloody clothing that was found inside of the ceiling, that was identified as a rubber glove, a sock, 
And also located and collected that day were a pair of work boots that were labeled Ray C. I cannot imagine who those belonged to. In an affidavit, it further described the scene when Annie was found. She had on surgical gloves and her left thumb was exposed. Blood was smeared on the wall and the killer had also used insulation to try to further conceal her body. They also found Annie's lab coat, a green pen that had unknown male DNA, and they found one sock with her body, and that sock just happened to match the bloody one that they found in the ceiling outside of her lab. They collected Ray's DNA on September 15th, and Ray's DNA was a match to the male DNA that was found on the pen cap that was found with Annie's body. And that sock that was found in the ceiling, that blood was a mix of Annie's and Ray's. And of course, that sock also matched the sock that was found with Annie's body. High Class Ray was arrested on September 17th in Cromwell at a Super 8. He was charged with murder and bail was set at $3 million. After his arrest, you know, he had some friends and neighbors that described him as friendly and likable. However, others, not so much. One described him as looking like something was wrong with him in the eyes. Many described him as odd, and especially his controlling behavior and personality. One girl, who I am not going to mention her name here, but she dated Ray in high school when she was 16, and she described his one personality as outgoing and well-liked, and then there was the other personality that she knew, and it was very dark and controlling. She said for the first three months of their relationship, he was really sweet and was like the perfect boyfriend. But then he started controlling everything. He would, he tried to control what she wore. He would control who she talked to, how she talked to them, down to even the volume of her voice that she used when she spoke. She said at times he got really scary looking in the eyes and she was very afraid of him. And she said it was honestly at, at some point it was just easier to go along with whatever he wanted. Eventually, he forced her to have sex with him. So, let's call it what it is, because rape is rape. He raped her. When she saw how abusive this relationship was, and how abusive he was to her, she finally got the courage to break it off with Ray. But she was so afraid of him that she had to have police escort her to her car from school for the next two weeks because she was terrified of Ray retaliating. When she broke up with him, he did not hit the breakup very well. Some others from his younger years, they said that they could not believe that the all-star baseball player would do this. However, others said they were not shocked at all by this psycho asshole's behavior. On March 17, 2011, two years after the death of Annie, Raymond Clark pled guilty to murder. He pled an Alford plea on charges of sexual assault. This means that he did not agree with parts or all of the charges. 
he got to maintain his innocence, but he also had to acknowledge the fact that they had enough evidence to prove him guilty. I mean, Ray, his semen was found on Annie's panty liner, on her body, and on the wall at the scene. The court, however, did find him guilty of attempted sexual assault. On June 3, 2011, he was sentenced to 44 years on murder and 20 on attempted sexual assault to be served concurrently. Ray never offered why he did what he did, but at his sentencing, he made a statement apologizing for the pain that he had caused and said he he took all responsibility for what he did. I mean, truly, if you did, Ray, you would not have accepted anything less than spending the rest of your natural life in prison. Ray's father also made a statement, essentially not understanding how or why this happened, because this isn't the Ray they knew. He said that his son was kind and gentle. No, he was not. Far from it. And there are plenty of people, even from his past back to high school, up until now, that could testify to how dark, controlling, and abusive that Ray Clark could be. Annie's mother described the beautiful, brilliant young woman her daughter was in a statement at the sentencing. She said the world will never know what Annie had to offer. She can no longer hug Annie, and she can only see her in her dreams. Her father stated he hoped the death of his daughter that it would create better security for all students and a safer work environment. While one cousin made a statement asking that Ray spend no less than the rest of his life in prison, another cousin spoke about how they were supposed to go to New York that weekend to celebrate the biggest day of Annie's life, and instead they had to fly back from New Haven knowing that she was going to be flying home that same day in her coffin. In 2016, Yale settled a lawsuit for $3 million that was filed by Annie's mother, Vivian Van Lee. The lawsuit stated Yale knew or should have known that Raymond Clark posed a potential threat due to him previously demonstrating aggressive behavior and violent tendencies, especially toward women. The lawsuit did not elaborate, so it's unknown if that was due to past behavior inside or outside of the workplace. Ray's, like his work records, they showed that he had no behaviors or no disciplines or anything like that noted in his files. Could it be possible that there had been incidents reported that were not addressed or documented? I don't know, but the lawsuit did go on to say that sexual attacks and harassment have been an ongoing issue on the Yale campus and they repeatedly failed to impose meaningful discipline on offenders. And that is the story of Anna Marie Lee. Annie was an absolutely beautiful young woman, incredibly smart, and she really, she just, she had a lot going for her in life. She had a lifetime full of healing and world changing and everything that she wanted to be. 
and Ray ripped that away from her. I have plenty of thoughts on Ray. And so go ahead and join our Facebook page. Join the private Facebook group for discussion on this case and all of our other cases. I cannot wait to see you back next week. And thank you so much for listening. Bye.